Christmas, everybody. You look wonderful. Are you all in the holiday spirit? Everyone happy and feeling Christmassy? I uh, watched uh, with my grandkids Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol uh, yesterday, and that always gets me in the Christmas spirit. I, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I, you know that because I was tweeting about it yesterday. I was so proud that uh, I've always loved Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol I, I, from six years old on. I've watched it every year. And, uh, uh, but I, I'm like the only one that's obsessed with this. I, most people I talk to aren't even aware of it. But it was in the front page of the paper yesterday. Because it's the 50th anniversary of Magoo's uh, uh, thing. And so they showed it last night. First time in 20 years it was back on television. And I, it was like, I'm so proud of my friend who uh, got all this attention. So I was tweeting about it, telling everyone to watch Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. And a lot of people did. And so I'm officially in the holiday spirit. Yes! And now I'm starting to listen to Christmas music, and, and I, I, I never understand the folks who start listening to Christmas music in November. I, that would drive me crazy. But two days ahead of time, yeah, I can start listening to that. That's, that's good. All right. Uh, you know, uh, Vanessa's up here giving announcements, and uh, she's so Christmassy and perky and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you might get the wrong impression about her, though, because she's actually got a turbocharged brain. She's in seminary. She's a lawyer. She brings Bonhoeffer's ethics to church. <laughs> She's reading Bonhoeffer's Ethics. Uh, I love this book, but it's not the easiest reading in the world. For example, it says here, this is a random page I just took out, in the course of historical life, there comes a point where the exact observance of the formal law of the state, of the commercial undertaking, or of the family, or of that matter of the scientific discovery, suddenly finds itself in the violent conflict with the in- ineluctable necessities of the lives of men. At this point, responsible and pertinent action leaves behind it a domain of principalities and convention. The, d- the domain, this is one sentence now, the domain of the normal and regular, it goes on, the whole sentence is a paragraph, here you go. She promised me she wouldn't uh, read that during my sermon, <laughs> even though it might be a little more interesting than my sermon. I don't know. But uh, we are, are, are uh, in this Advent season, uh, and we're using Bonhoeffer's writings uh, to kind of give us some guidance uh, on that in this little book called God is in His Manger. Uh, for those of you who are visiting, hey, by the way, uh, hello, visitors. And we've got some people from Georgia here. Hello, people from Georgia. Uh, they get the uh, commute award, I assume. Um, and so we are, Bonhoeffer is one of my favorite theologians, apparently one of Vanessa's as well, and uh, uh, I've always loved his writings. My book, Repenting of Religion, is based on his ethics, the book that Vanessa's reading. Um, and so we're, we're, uh, uh, well, he was the guy who confronted the Nazis, got thrown into prison, was finally executed. In the last two years of his life, he wrote a lot of stuff in prison um, that um, is just profound, just incredible. And some of it's contained in this uh, book called God is in His Manger. And so we're during the Advent season, we've been looking at that. But before I get to that, I want to make an announcement here. Um, this week was a fantastic week here at Woodland Hills Church. Um, we, had the, we hosted the Salvation Army here. And uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, I was here, and this was fantastic. The place was just families everywhere. It was wonderful. But on Tuesday and Wednesday, we provided 3,285 families uh, with 8,918 children with toys. Isn't that fantastic? It was wonderful. These are, these, are, these are economically challenged families who otherwise wouldn't be able to have these toys. And then on Saturday, we provided another 895 families with 3,122 children with toys, making for a total of 3,680 families with 12,030 children all got toys. Isn't that wonderful? I love it. Yes. 
I, I love doing stuff like that. And see, uh, this is a last minute thing because they normally are, uh, work out, they have this like toy shop and they work out of uh, Century College, but they have to pay rent there. And for some reason it didn't work out this year. So at the last minute they asked, or well, someone here found out about it. And so we said, hey, come over here. You have the building for free and we'll give you any kind of help you want. And so it went beautiful. So I think we may have a permanent gig here. So get ready for next Christmas. Uh, we're we're going to get volunteers and we're going to be helping out the Salvation Army bringing Christmas to a lot of folks. Also, we had this week, um, uh, a bunch of us went down to the City Hall on Tuesday night, and um, uh, the uh, planning committee for the city of Maplewood approved uh, unanimously for us to have a shelter here, a food shelter. Yes. And I, but I also have a prayer request. We have one more hurdle to jump, and that will be happening in January, because this has to go to the city council. Uh, and we have to have, as I understand it, a unanimous vote there as well. So I'm becoming their best friend and, and uh, getting to know them. But, uh, I, and I don't think there'll be any problem, but I, I still, I, I, we need their approval. So uh, would you th- if you think about it, would you pray uh, that God gives us favor for the city uh, council so that we can have a rockin' food shelf here, uh, and it's going to be fantastic, all right? Keep that in prayer. So uh, we are dealing with uh, the Bonhoeffer series here, God is in His Manger. And um, I want to start with uh, reading a passage of Scripture, and then I'll read two quotes from the uh, God is in His Major collection. Uh, it may not initially look like a Christmas uh, passage, usually we read out of the infancy narratives, uh, but believe me, this is very Christmassy and very much on the point of what I feel like God is uh, leading me to share uh, this morning. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I want us to really grasp this here. Paul is saying that the crucified Christ which is the whole story of God becoming a human being and then getting crucified on the cross, bearing our sins. Uh, That is the power of God, and that is the wisdom of God. And it's absolutely profound because it's hard to imagine anyone with less power than somebody who's been crucified on a cross. It's hard to imagine anything more foolish than somebody who's got all the power in the universe letting folks put him there, getting crucified on the cross. It looks foolish, and it looks weak, and yet this is how God saves the world. This is how God redeems us. And if we're thinking in kingdom terms, then we're seeing the power of God. It's not an Arnold Schwarzenegger muscle kind of a thing. The power of God looks like the cross. When God shows off his omnipotent power, it looks like God getting crucified. And when God puts on display his wisdom, it looks like God getting crucified. We're dealing with a very unusual God here, folks. It's important because he calls us to be a very unusual people. Okay, then a a, a quote from Bonhoeffer in the book, God is in his manger. Bonhoeffer says this, Where is the divinity, where is the might of this child, referring to the Christ child? Where's the godness here and where's the power here? He answers it, he says, "In, In the divine love in which he became like us. His poverty in the manger is his might. I love that phrase. The poverty of the manger. 
manger, by the way, is a feeding trough in this barn that they're born into. Okay, so that's his power. That is his might. And in the might of love, he overcomes the chasm between God and, and humankind. He overcomes sin and death. And so here, the, the might, the manger is the might of God. It's not that the manger, the little baby in the manger, this God who becomes a human being, a little baby, put in this feeding trough. It's not just that that conceals the might of God. Like God's pretending to be this. No, Bonhoeffer gets it. He applies to the manger the same logic that Paul applied to the cross. This is what God's power looks like. This is what God's divinity looks like. This is the true God. The revelation of what God's really like. This little baby in a manger. This criminal being crucified on the cross. We are dealing with a very unusual God. And the final quote is from... uh, it's also from a God in a manger, but it's from Frederick Buchner, who's another theologian who's very much worth reading. And he says this. The incarnation is a kind of vast joke, whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. I love that. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. The God of the universe is wearing diapers. Until we too have taken the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it. We have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. You're only taking it seriously if you're scandalized by this. If you see how crazy it is. How absolutely, even offensive it is. Um, If that's not happening, then we're not seeing it right. And what we're up against here, as I said last week, is that we are too familiar with this story. It's just, it becomes nothing more than a cute story to us. Um, with the familiarity of it, it's, it dulls our thinking. It gives us cataracts. And so I want to pray right now that God removes the cataracts from our eyes, removes the dullness from our mind, so that we can see the profound, radical, beautiful nature of what this Christmas is all about, what this story is all about. Uh, what, how, what it implies for our view of God and what it implies for how we do our life. So pray with me here. Father, uh, Abba Father, thank you for every person in this auditorium and every person who is listening, our parishioners and uh, people looking on, through television and any other means. God, and I pray that, Lord, you right now remove the cataracts, that, uh, cataracts of familiarity that cause us to miss the full beauty of this, the, the unique power that is your power. And that causes us to trust other kinds of power which are not inconsistent with your character. So, Father, remove the cataracts, remove the dullness. Uh, God, open our minds and hearts to be able to see this story and hear this story with the eyes and and the heart and the ears of a child, as though for the first time, and to capture its wonder and all of its radical beauty. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. I will get back to these uh, passages here in a little bit. But I, I first want to ask by, I start by asking you this question. Um, did anyone here growing up have to deal with a bully like I did? Did you have any bullies that you had to put up with? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Um, those bullies, they tend to be kids around 5th, 6th, 7th grade. And um, they, they grow up a little faster than others do, so they're a little bigger maybe than others, and they are a little, they're more, they're, they're more fearless than other folks are, and they're just, they're just tough kids. And they throw the weight around, and they make life miserable for everybody else. And everyone's afraid of these kids. Uh, you know, they, some are afraid, and so they, they become their friends. They get on the inside circle, and they suck up to these bullies. 
You know, they're still afraid of them, but at least they're on the inside. And so they're always, like, you know, giving them compliments and saying how cool the, the bully is and, and whatever and, and criticizing others. So they're kind of on the inner circle of the bullies. And the rest of us who aren't on the inner circle of the bullies, we just try to avoid them because they're mean and nasty kids. We had one on, on our block. Um, I, I will call him, I'll uh, give him an alias, Billy McLeod. I just pulled the name out of nowhere because I, for all I know, he's going to hear this message and I don't want to come, have him to come over here and beat me up. And I, <laughs> And since I'm a follower of Jesus, I can't even fight back. So this is going to be really bad. So I'm going to call him Billy McLeod. Um, and and see, he was always, he was a kid who was always in trouble in, in, the, in and out of Boys Town quite a bit. Uh, just just a, a rough, rough, nasty uh, kid. And we were all afraid of him. And our, in our neighborhood, we only had one baseball field. We all had to kind of vie for time on that baseball field. Uh, sometimes... Uh, me and my friends would get up really early in the morning to go there so we could have dibs on the baseball field. Um, different groups were always trying to get on it. And so there, it happened several times where we would be on the baseball field and Billy McLeod and his hooligans would come and they'd want to play baseball. And we would have to pack up and leave because we're, no one's going to fight Billy McLeod. So he, they'd come and we'd just kind of, you know, trot off. And they'd often hurl insults at us. Hey, wussies, are you afraid? Oh, you're not going to stand up for yourself? And we just kind of walk away. And there came a point where I just had enough. I just had enough. I, I, uh, I had, uh, between fifth and sixth grade, went through kind of a growth spurt. I, I developed a little bit of muscles and got a little bigger and a little more self-confident. And I just, uh, we were playing baseball and, and McLeod and his group came and my friends started to pack up, you know, to get ready to leave. And I turned to them and I said, stop, we're not leaving. And they were like, I will confess to you that there was a part of the motivation was that there was a girl in my group of friends that I was liking. There's always a chick involved, all right? That that love can make a coward strong, I'll tell you. So I was Billy McCloud wasn't gonna get this baseball diamond this time. I just was I had enough. So they come over and I go and put I stand on home base and I to say, we've got the field, uh, you'll have to wait. And now McLeod and his friends just went, oh, Boyd's going to take on McLeod. There's a rumor going on. I, th- I think it was a story. Maybe it was legend, but I think it was true that the last person who stood up to Billy McLeod got hospitalized. And their parents actually moved away because they wanted to protect their, their child from McLeod. This guy was nasty. But I had enough of this. I was going to take a stand here. And so he comes up to me with his nose, you know, about an inch away from each other. And, and he goes, Boyd, leave. I said, we're not leaving. He goes, you're going to make me make you leave? I said, but if that's what it takes, you know, go, go for it. And so that now there's a circle around us and the tension's in the air. My heart is pounding, man. I'm so scared. But I'm acting like I'm tough, you know, because I got the chick I want to impress. So I'm acting tough. And so uh, we, we, we square off. And... Um, Around, around, around home base. And, and he, he starts going, he has, I don't know, he's in this weird posture where he starts going like this. <laughs> and I see, I never had a fight in my life. I'm a lover, not a fighter. I, I don't know how to fight. So I assume this is what they do. So I, I go like this. <laughs> and so now we're, you know, two, two sixth graders hovering home base looking like idiots. And then someone in the crowd around us says, hey, uh, 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 no kick rules? And um, apparently they have rules on these things. And then this Billy McLeod goes, no, uh, this is an anything goes fight. Ooh, so you can do anything like this. 
And yeah, so, so um, he threw the first punch, or the first kick, and then I don't even remember the fight after that because I just went ballistic. I went crazy. I just saw red. I, 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 I must have had a lot of pent-up anger or something because I just exploded. I just went crazy on the kid. And um, the last thing I remember is, is uh, uh, I had him on the ground and I was just pummeling his face. Just, I was just going crazy. Uh, I know, I, I wasn't Christian back then, all right? <laughs> the real carnal thing is I'm kind of happy about that. <laughs> but I would not, no, I, I should have, you know, if I was a Christian, I would have, I would have turned, you know, done something different. But, but uh, um, you know, the, I was pummeling his face, and, uh, and, and I was saying, give, you got to say give. And he wouldn't say give. And so his friends were saying, say give. Because every time he wouldn't do it, I just pummeled him more. And he finally said give. And then that night, um, we get a call, and their family is going to sue us because he needs dental work. His teeth are actually loose. I mean, that's how bad. I mean, I went, you don't want to mess with me. Let me tell you. <laughs> My name is Anigo Montoya. I, I, you killed my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> well, you know, what happens, and then my dad, uh, took, my dad he, he had to pretend like he was angry with me, even though I know he was proud. Because <laughs> he, he knew this kid was no good. So he, 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 you know, pretended to be mad at me. He took me over to that house, and we worked it out, and they didn't sue us. And, and, and the, the good news is this. A, uh, uh, Billy stopped being a bully to everybody. B, no one ever picked on me again. And C, I got the chick. So this is a story with a happy ending. This is... It, uh, in fact, uh, Jim, uh, Billy and I started uh, being on the same wrestling team together, and we got to be kind of friends. Not good friends, but we, you know, we, we got along. So, so it's a good story. Now you're wondering, why would you tell us this on Christmas? <laughs> what is Christmas about this story? Well, actually, it's got a lot to do with Christmas. Um, the deal is, is we have throughout history been afraid of bullies. Uh, people who've got more power than us and who can use that power to harm us. And there's always been bullies. Uh, the bullies have been the kings and the princes and the soldiers, the military generals or the tribal leaders or just maybe the neighborhood bullies. But people who've got more strength, more power than we do, and they use it to harm us when they want to get their way. And so we've been afraid of bullies. All throughout human history, there's been bullies and we've been terrified by them. It's also the case that all throughout history, we've had a sense, humans have had a sense that, that we are, that there's a power that holds us in being, that, that we know we didn't create ourselves and, and we don't sustain ourselves, and so we're aware of this, this power, this divine power, massive power, uh, and, and um, we're terrified by it. And so when humans have ever thought about God or the gods, because in fact we have been estranged from God since the, since the rebellion, um, and, and so we have seen them as, as cosmic bullies. We've portrayed the gods as, as these superheroes with, with more power than we have. And, and, and uh, uh, they get to have their way. And they can, uh, uh, you know, our, our fate is in their hands. And they can inflict tremendous harm on us when they get mad. And, and, and the universe is run by these bullies or by a, bill, a, a bully. And so then we've invented religion. You know, so these gods are like, like, like Thor and Zeus and Poseidon, and, and they're like juveniles in the heavenly realm. And, 
and, and they just use their power however they want, and, and we suffer because of it. So then religion is invented as a way of trying to suck up to the bully gods or to avoid the bully gods, to appease the bully gods. So we don't want them bullying on us. So uh, in religion, you know, we've got rules that we obey to try to make them happy, or we've got you know, animals that we sacrifice uh, to, to try to appease them, or we offer up our grain to them. And, and so, in some religions, you offer up your children to them. Whatever it takes to keep the bullies off our back, whatever it takes to suck up to the bullies, whatever it takes to appease them, because uh, we don't want them bullying on us. That's what religion's been all about. It's been a fear-based thing. This is Zeus with Zeus power who can crush us if he wants to. And a, a major part of religion throughout history has been to try to suck up to the bully gods to try to court their favor so that they'll use their power for our benefit. And, and so when we go to battle, we want, we want to have the, the gods on our side, the most powerful gods on our side, so we offer up whatever sacrifices we need to and say whatever prayers we need to. Oh, you're great and powerful, because you always got to stroke the egos of the gods. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they, they just always need massaging, so we're always saying, oh, you're great and mighty and powerful. Uh, please help us crush our enemies. And, and you know that, that you've been worshiping the right god and are in the favor of the right god if you win. If you kill more of them than they kill of you and you win, well, that's proof. Pagans have always thought this way throughout history. Proof that you've courted the favor of the right God. Throughout history. The way you know that God's on your side is that you win. Uh, Pagans have always fought for God and country. That's not a new phrase. It's certainly not a Christian phrase. It's a slogan that characterizes history. For God and country. The gods are on our side. And whose gods is bigger? And so we go to war and we'll find out. And then the pagans have always assumed that you know that, that you're in the favor of the bully gods when uh, you have good food and you have health prosperity and things are going well. Well, according to the favor of the gods. So far as I can see, things haven't changed much, not even here in quote-unquote Christian America. Uh, on the whole, people think like pagans. can't tell you how many times I hear about how uh, we know that we are an exceptional nation before God because, look, we, gotta, we, we, we win. We know we've got, more, we've got more wealth, we've got more toys, we've got a better life. And that's proof that we are a blessed nation. God has blessed us. We're in the favor of God. That's, that's just tr- classical, traditional pagan thinking. Um, and and uh, we, we've always thought this way here in America when the white Europeans came over and, and conquered the land and slaughtered the, the natives. Uh, well, it was all done in the name of God and country. Uh, this is a Zeus god, a bully god, but he's on our side, and so he helps us kill, and then we get the land, and it was done explicitly. It was manifest destiny, they, they called it, uh, that white Europeans were going to rule America, and some even held would rule the world. Manifest destiny means it's providence. It means it's obvious God is on our side. We're the special people, and, and, and so we have the Zeus power on our side. And this has been the, a staple of, of, of American history. Whenever the, things have gone well for us, well, that's a sign that we're being blessed by the right God. The same mindset uh, sees uh, the opposite when things go bad. So when things go bad, uh, it, it, this is the judgment of God, the wrath of God. We're no longer in the God's favor. The, the, the Zeus gods are, are, are ticked off. Despite the fact that Jesus explicitly tells us not to try to discern the hand of God in disaster rebukes people who think that they can discern the hand of God in disaster, Luke 13. Despite that, we have just recently this week seen a number of Christian spokespeople announce that uh, the reason this massacre happened in, in, in Newton, Connecticut was because America's turn is back on God. Like we were so holy in, in the good old days. I'm not sure when those good old days were, but you know, yeah, we, we apparently, back when we had slaves, you know, yeah, we were close to God then, Christian nation. Um, 
And this is pretty typical. Whenever disaster happens, you have some Christian spokespersons who will announce. They can discern uh, the hand of God in this. So when 9-11 happened, uh, Jerry Falwell, may rest in peace, he announces that this is, the the ones to blame are the gays and the liberals and the abortionists and the ACLU and basically anyone who disagrees with Jerry Falwell, well, that's why America was attacked uh, because he is, of course, on the side of God and to disagree with him is to disagree with God. And so uh, that's that's who to blame. It's, it's, It's the same old kind of pagan religion thinking. You discern the favor of the gods by how things are going for you. That same kind of thinking is, is, I think, going on today when people have a picture of God that's more like Zeus than it is like Jesus. Even though they claim to follow Jesus, they get a Zeus picture of God and they think they're complimenting God by ascribing Zeus qualities to him. In fact, for a lot of people, it seems that God is Zeus on steroids. You know, he doesn't just have Zeus' coercive power. He's, he's got, he controls everything, everything. He's, he's, he's behind every disaster, every tornado, every earthquake, every massacre. He's the one who's orchestrating who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Makes some to go to heaven, makes some to go to hell. And then he eternally punishes the people who go to hell for being the way that he created them to be. And then he turns to his followers and says, Well, do you agree that I am all great and glorious and beautiful and just and loving? And if you want to be on the inside of, uh, in the favor of this God, then you have to say, oh, yes, the, when, you, when you punish people for being the way that you made them, well, that is just, that is beautiful, that is righteous, that is loving. Because if you don't, maybe you're going to be the next one squashed. It's, um, even though no, no person who's mentally healthy can possibly look at that picture and say that it's beautiful, loving, and just. But if you're scared enough, you'll say it. See, this is, this is, how, this is what we've been doing throughout history. Um... It's a repackaged pagan fear-based religion, a cosmic bully, and we just don't want to be squashed. The thing is, folks, this, here's the thing, is that when you look at this universe, um, you sense what human beings have always sensed, and and that is that there's this incredible power behind things. Uh, I I read this last week, there's a new estimate out now that there are 500 billion galaxies in this universe. 500 billion galaxies. Five times more than we previously thought. And they'll probably up that five times next year. But 500 billion galaxies, and each one has between one and two billion stars. And just the the enormity of that, the vastness of that, the awesomeness of that, uh, it's an unfathomable power. And that can strike terror in our heart. Because you're, we can become aware that that God can do anything he wants. We are completely, utterly, exhaustively at his mercy. He doesn't have to answer to anybody. He can do anything he wants. He can inflict on us, if he wants, the most unthinkable nightmare imaginable. Which is precisely what a lot of people have attributed to him. And so when we sense the awesomeness of the power with which we have to do, it makes this question all important. What is the character of the God who created this universe? What's the character of this God? What does this God want with us? What's his plan for us? What is he, he going to do with us? What is he like? And see, in response to that question, the Christmas story has an answer that is beautiful, radical, and utterly unexpected. Because the Christmas story tells us that Uh, When the creator of this universe shows up, the creator, the one who spoke everything in existence, the one who holds every molecule in existence, this awesome God with this unimaginable power, uh, when he shows up, this God that we've been terrorized by throughout all of history, when he shows up, he looks like a little baby, a cute little baby, a diaper-wearing baby. A baby who wears diapers. By the way, I forgot to give you the title of this message. The title of this message is Diaper Power. Uh, he wears diapers. Yes, um, he looks like a cute little baby. The God of the universe. 
This is the opposite of what people have always envisioned. This is the opposite of the fear-motivated Zeus projections onto the, the gods, the, the bully conception of, of God, the Zeus power, coercive, squishing power of the gods. This is the opposite. God shows up. He looks like a cute little baby. Uh, you know, I, I, some of you I know I follow my, my uh, uh, website, Renew. It's Renew with a K. Um, and I post blogs on there all the time. And I, I have recently been responding to a, a guy that I went to school with. His name is Bart Ehrman. He wrote the book, Misquoting Jesus. And, and um, uh, he argues that the infancy narratives are legendary. And so I've had the last two weeks these video blogs uh, where I respond to this essay in which he argues that the infancy narratives uh, and the Gospels as a, as a whole are, are mostly legendary. And, and I argue that we've got every reason, historical reason, uh, that we could possibly have to believe that they are rooted in history. They're historical, not legend. This really happened. But maybe the best argument would be this. Um, when people create legends about gods, they don't look like this one. When people create legends about the gods, they look like stories of superhero bullies who use Zeus power uh, to, to squish people when they're angry. Uh, when we create legends about gods, it's, it's about these, these gods who are stronger than us and, and we have to suck up to them and placate them and we're terrified by them. That's what it looks like when humans make legends and myths about the gods. The, the Christmas story is the opposite of that. This isn't the kind of story that human beings make up. God becoming a little baby in a manger wearing diapers. No one creates a story about the almighty God becoming a human being, a little baby, and, and, and wearing diapers. They, we, we just don't do that. No one makes up a story about the Almighty God uh, showing his power uh, by being placed in a manger. No one makes up a story about the Almighty God coming down to earth and getting himself crucified. No one makes up a story about the Almighty God uh, whose passion is to give himself away on the base of the human race, this rebel human race. This isn't what human beings do. This is the opposite of what human beings do. The infancy stories, they're far too beautiful to be made up. Uh, we have every historical reason to think they're rooted in history. But on top of that, this just isn't the way legends look when human beings fantasize about what the gods are like. No, we have terrifying pictures of God, not cute baby pictures of God. See, this, this Christmas story, if we can see it with fresh eyes and hear it with fresh ears and, have it, and, and, and receive it with the heart of a child as though for the first time, folks, it is, it is scandalous. It's, it's, uh, it is the most incredible, mind-boggling, mind-bending, mind-exploding, un- unfathomable, incomprehensible, unexpected, shocking, outrageously beautiful story in the universe. It's just fantastic. It's absolutely shocking. It's the opposite of the, the Zeus power. It's too beautiful for humans to, to, to make up. It's a story about a God who shows forth his glory and his power by the poverty of the manger and the foolishness of the cross. It's too beautiful for human beings to have made this up. It's a shocking story about a creator who rules the universe with diaper power, humble power, servant power, cross power. A God who shows his wisdom, the, his, shows his wisdom in governing the world by the foolishness of getting crucified. A God who shows forth his power by appearing weak. A God who shows forth his glory by taking on our shame. A God who shows forth his holiness by bearing our sin. This is the opposite of a Zeus story, the opposite of the kind of stories human beings typically tell. This is too beautiful for any human being uh, to have made up. It's just shocking. A God, he reveals his bigness by becoming small. He reveals his greatness by becoming humble. Uh, this, this story is so shocking. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of my life reading theology. It's what I do. Uh, and I've got to tell you that this story is so shocking that so far as I can discern, uh, a good deal of Christian theology has had trouble accepting it. 
What you get in a good deal of Christian theology is something like this. It looks like God is the kind of God who becomes a human being, a little baby, wears diapers and gets crucified. It looks like his power is the power of the manger and the foolishness of the cross. It looks like that, but actually, actually, our God is, is the, the, has the Zeus power on steroids. Because our God doesn't just have you know, more power than us. Our God controls everything. Our God is the one who's behind the tornadoes and the earthquakes and the disasters and the massacres and who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Now, that doesn't look very much like the baby in the manger, but, but, but just trust us. That's what the, the, the church has had trouble accepting how radical, how different, how unexpected, how counterintuitive this beautiful Christmas story is. But see, folks, everything hangs. Everything hangs on our trusting. That as a matter of fact, the, the God who's revealed in the poverty of the manger and the foolishness of the cross is the true God. Counter to everything we, in our fallen condition, are, atten- are, are inclined to project onto God, everything hangs on our trusting that this is what God really looks like. God is this different. God is this beautiful. When God shows up, this God that we've always been terrorized by, and he shows up as this little baby, cute little baby wearing diapers. Uh, What he's saying to us is basically, you don't need to be afraid. I'm not the bully God you've always thought I was. You don't need to be afraid. It says this in 1 John. John says in this beautiful passage, He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. I love this passage. There's no fear. Everyone say no fear. fear. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. The one who fears is not made perfect in love to the degree that we have fear. We're not yet, uh, we haven't yet fully received uh, perfect love. And see, this Christmas story is a story of perfect love. This God who out of love would stoop to this level. On our behalf, it's a story of perfect love. And if we embrace it deeply and trust it deeply, it has the power to do what all the Zeus power in the world can't do, and that is to drive out fear. In fact, this, this story, this kind of power, it, it, it frees us from fear, and that's the opposite of the Zeus power, which installs fear. See, it's a story that can absolutely liberate us. The greatness of God's power when he gets big and creating the universe is surpassed by the greatness of his love when he gets small. There's a correlation there. See, love always has to get small. Uh, You can't love, a truly loving person isn't someone who loves by getting big, by loving big. Loving humanity in general, for example. Well, that's great. I love you. I love the human race. Wonderful. But, But you can't really love like that. I mean, you have an intention to love everybody, but love, as I said last week, a truly loving person loves by getting small, not big. Love can't be abstract, can't be big. It's, love is always particular. As I said last week, love is always incarnational. It's always small. You love by, by getting small and zeroing all your focus, being fully present to this person at this time and fully present to that person at that time. Uh, by giving your all to them, that's what love does. It gets small. When you love this person who maybe isn't important by the world's standards, but you ascribe to them the importance of a king because they have all your attention, or you give all your attention to this child, or all your attention to your spouse or your friend, or even your enemy, because we're called to love our enemies, that's what love looks like. Love always gets small. And so God reveals his power by getting big, creating the universe, 500 billion galaxies with one to two billion stars in each one. But he reveals the greatness of his love by getting small. Becoming a little zygote in the womb of Mary, a little child placed in the manger wearing diapers. 
Sometimes people argue, I've seen this argued a lot, that, that um, uh, they say, since we now know with our scientific uh, you know, discoveries that the universe is this big, 500 billion galaxies, well, we now know the, Chris, the, the, the Christian faith is silly, that God would be interested in this human race on this little planet, a little solar system, a little minor galaxy. Yeah, it, it's silly. You know, God, God, if there is a God, he has better things to do and more important things to do than us little people. They deal with us little people. But see, if, if you're thinking... Along the lines of the God who's revealed in Christ, you, you, you understand that this is exactly what God would do. Because uh, love always has to get small. So the, the infinitude of his love is, revealed, is manifested precisely by his getting small to this little people. Uh, becoming fully present to us. Giving us his all in the person of Jesus Christ. And thereby showing what we are worth to him. God reveals his greatness by getting small, not by getting big. And if we embrace the, per- the perfect love manifested in this Christmas story, it has the power to set us free, completely free of all fear. Uh, it has the power to set us free because it reveals that God is not uh, a, a, a bully God. It reveals that God's the opposite of a bully God. The, the perfect love revealed in the Christmas story has the power to set us free from fear because it reveals that God thinks that we were worth this, going to this extreme, crossing an infinite distance to become a little child, and then going even further to bear our sin on Calvary. God is saying that we are worth that to him. And so the Christmas story has the power to set us free because it reveals that you could not be more loved than you actually are this moment. Uh, because you're loved with the love that God is, and God's love is perfect love. Uh, it reveals that, that the love that God has for us is unconditional. That he's with us regardless of where we may be at. Listen, listen to this quote of, of Bonhoeffer here. Uh, he says, human beings are dehumanized by fear. This is, fear uh, lowers us. It, it, it sucks some of the humanity out of us. In the same way that you can't uh, possibly, uh, perfect, perfect love casts out fear, so also fear casts out perfect love. And to the degree that we fear, we can't be living in perfect love. It dehumanizes us. But then Bonhoeffer says, Bonhoeffer says, uh, but we should not fear. We, we, we should not be afraid. Look to him, talking about the Christ child. Look to him in your fear. You wouldn't be afraid of a baby. Think about him. Place him before our eyes and call him. Pray to him and believe that he is now with you and helps you. The fear will yield and fade and you will become free. Hallelujah. Free through faith in the strong and living Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in another place and he says, God wants to always be with us wherever we may be in our sin, in our suffering, and death. We are no longer alone. God is with us. See, folks, uh, the, the, the perfect love revealed in the Christmas story has the power to set us free because it reveals a love for us that's unconditional. It's perfect and unconditional. God is not like Santa Claus. He doesn't just bring presents when you're good, but not when you're bad. No, no, God, God's love is there whether you're good or, or bad. God, God is, is with us in our sin to help us get free of our sin. His love is there in our struggles to help us through our struggles. He's there when we fall uh, to pick us up. He's there in the middle of our tragedies to turn the tragedies around and bring redemptive value out of them. And he's there in the midst of our suffering in order to bring comfort to the suffering and to bring some good out of the suffering and even use it to our advantage. God is with us when we are in hell. That's what Calvary's all about. He takes on our hell. You're not alone when, when you've made a hell of your life or someone else has made a hell of your life. No, God is with you. The Christmas story is about the God whose name is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not just with us when we're, we're good, but with us when we're, when we're, we're making ourselves into hell. 
Uh, He's always there. He doesn't go away. It's so important to remember that when we're most inclined to fall back on our fear and push God away. When, when, When we screw up big time and we failed and we can't get free or we were free and fall back into it, we're, we're there, our fear, we tend to picture God as a Zeus God and we wonder when he's going to squish us. Especially when you have Christian spokespeople out there saying, this is what God does. You turn your back on him, he orchestrates a massacre. Uh, no, when, when we need him most when we're suffering and in tragedy and feel like life is hell. Know that God is with you and that knowledge can, can, can drive out all fear. His love is unconditional. His presence with us is unconditional. He's always there. God frees us from our sin, not by a Zeus power threat over us. No, he frees us from our sin by the power of the impoverished manger, by the power of the foolish cross, by the humble healing power of his servant love. Uh, He he frees us from the inside out. He, He frees us by making us want to, out of love, live for him. That's how he transforms us. The power of the, 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 the perfect love of this Christmas story has the power to set us free. And the final thing I'll say is this. It has the power to set us free from fear because it's a story about the God who wins. The Christmas story is a story that the God whose power is the poverty of the manger and the foolishness of the cross, that power wins. That's why you have in the infancy narratives, in Matthew as well as in Luke, you have... Uh, songs that are sung about how this baby triumphs because of this baby. Uh, the, the world's going to be liberated and, and freed from its oppression. This baby wins, praise God. Uh, and this baby kind of power, this diaper power, this manger power, this cross power, this humble power, that's the kind of power that wins. And if we trust that, it can drive out all fear. See, he, here's, here's, here's why this is so important. We live in a scary world, as we all know all too well, in light of the, the, the tragedies that have happened in the last few weeks. And in this scary world, it's easy to fall into fear. And when we fall into fear, it pushes out love. And when we fall into fear, we're most inclined to start to trust Zeus power, coercive power, gun power. When we're in fear, we, we tend to fall into that age-old pagan assumption that if only the good people had enough gun power uh, and more gun power than the evil people, well, then we could kill the evil people and now the world would be safe and the world would be good. Like we've never tried that before. Uh, the clearest statement I've ever seen on this was given to us by the representative of the NRA this last week when he said, as many of us heard, only, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is for the good guy to have a gun. So in other words, the more guns we have, uh, the safer we're going to be. Which, by the way, is a great sales pitch if you're trying to sell guns. <laughs> See, and I'm not weighing in here on the political issue of what you should have the right to own or not own, whatever. What I'm, what I'm calling our attention to is this age-old pagan mindset. It's been there from the foundation of humanity, at least from the time of the fall. This assumption that if only we, the righteous, have enough power to crush those, the wicked, well, then the world will be safe and the world will be good. And after thousands and thousands and thousands of years of trying that, we've got to ask the question, how's that working for us? This assumption that we just had more guns, bigger guns, well, then uh, the world will be safe. Well, you know what? It doesn't get rid of fear. It creates more fear and it creates more violence. And the violence then uh, justifies violence against you, and the cycle goes on and on and on, and so it's been throughout history. The violence, cycle of violence. More and more guns, bigger and bigger guns. And we'll all be safe. Truth is, we're all just more afraid, which makes us rely more on guns. 
And we're all dehumanized in the process. Folks, the Christmas story, Holy Spirit, help us to hear this now. The Christmas story is an invitation for a people to trust a totally different kind of power and to trust a totally different, radically different, infinitely more beautiful kind of a God and to be freed from fear by the power of his perfect love. Christmas story is a story about uh, and that's what, 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 who God is and what he does for us, but it's also an invitation for us now to embrace that and to be transformed into his image. Jesus says, don't trust the power of the gun. Trust the power of the cross. Trust the power of the manger, the power of servant love, the power of turning your other cheek. Jesus says, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. If you live by the gun, you die by the gun. Sooner or later... And so he says, hey, let's try something different. Why don't you put down the guns, pick up a cross, and follow me. And see, that, folks, looks foolish to the world. It looks foolish to the world. It looks foolish to the natural mind. I don't doubt that there's some people listening to me right now that are saying, that is stupid, that is, is dumb. That's foolish. But, folks, the Christmas story is foolish. If we can hear it for the first time, get rid of the cataracts of familiarity, it is a crazy story. Buchner was right. It's like a vast joke. You've got to be kidding me. The Almighty God wears diapers. What? The Almighty God gets himself crucified, and that's how he wins? You've got to be kidding me. But in fact, this is the truth. This is the truth. This is the way it goes down. This is who God really is. This is who God calls us to be. It looks foolish. Um... But, but, you know, Paul tells us explicitly that it's supposed to look foolish. God chooses to do it in a foolish way, in a weak way. His power is in the weakness. His power is in the foolishness. His wisdom is displayed in that foolishness. And we are called to follow him. Be imitators of God, it says in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. So, you know what? If, if God looks foolish and we're supposed to follow God, I submit to you that the way to know that you're on the right team is that you also look foolish. A child of Abba, Abba's father, Abba's our father, we're to look foolish because we're to take up the cross and trust the same thing. And I, I, I guarantee you when the kingdom comes, it, it's not going to look foolish. In fact, when the kingdom comes, we'll see the wisdom of manger power and cross power. And I'm sure we'll see the stupidity of thinking that more guns will make us safe. After thousands and thousands of millennia trying this, we're still trying, it's still doing the same old thing. I think we'll, 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 we'll just see how, we'll wonder how could we possibly have ever believed that. We'll see when the kingdom comes in fullness, we'll see that this is the only power. The cross and the manger, humility, servant love, is the only kind of power that could really ever totally defeat evil permanently, and it will. And so if we trust that, then we know that all loss is simply a temporary loss, and it empowers us to live free of fear. The only way we can possibly live the way Jesus calls us to live, folks, is if our heart is free of fear. The minute we start to fear, we want to grab the gun. And the minute we get into fear, we want to start putting our trust in a Zeus God rather than the manger diaper-wearing God. We can only live like Jesus calls us to live if the perfect love of the Christmas story has so become part of our identity and so become part of our heart that it is life itself. The love that God has for us is life itself. The reason for our existing is the love of God, the perfect love of God. And when that is the center of our being and we seek first the kingdom of God and that's our life, well then you know what folks? It means, it means we don't have to cling to anything anymore. We, we can live with open palms, which means we can be free of fear. And when we can live free of fear, now we're in the position where we can live and love the way Christ calls us to live and love. 
Uh, we have to trust that the diaper-wearing God wins, the, the, the cross-power wins. So whatever we lose, and the Bible tells us we may lose in the short term, but it's a temporary loss. And there'll come a time when it will be more than compensated and more than restored. And if, with that confidence, we can live free of fear. So folks, the Christmas story invites us to trust in a totally different kind of a God, radically different kind of God, and to trust in a totally different kind of power, and to be freed from fear by the power of his perfect love. And so I encourage us to receive that love, deeply make it the reason why you exist. Uh, see in this Christmas story the prescription for how we're to live every day of our life. That's something that should be celebrated once a year. And as that becomes part of the center of who you are, watch it set you free from fear. And now you can dare, I dare you, I dare you to trust the power of the manger, the power of the cross. Put down your gun, pick up the cross, and follow him. Amen. Amen. God is good. God is good. Oh, I appreciate that. God is good. Because I know that probably four-fifths of all the churches in America, that this would be the last sermon I'd ever preach in the church. I, mean, I know that. So I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you guys. All right. I'm going to close in prayer, and as I do, I want to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And uh, if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, please come up here and share with these folks. It's be held in confidence, and, um, and, and let the minister do. This is what the body of Christ is supposed to be doing. So, Abba, Father, hey, would you stand as I, I, I pray this prayer? Um, and, and in your hearts, just agree with me as I'm praying this. Uh, I feel the need to, to really take authority over something here. Uh, Abba, Father, we are your people, and in Jesus' name, we want to... Uh, apply the authority of, of Jesus Christ in whom we stand, in whom we live. And we come against all fear, and we come against the root of all fear. We come against the spirit behind all fear. We come against all anxiety and all worry, all nervousness in Jesus' name. And God, we call on you to baptize us in your perfect love, to drive out that fear. I pray, Lord God, that every person listening to this message right now, uh, whether in this auditorium or two years from now uh, through podcasts, I pray in Jesus' name, God, that they are receiving right this moment your perfect love that drives out fear. Drive it out, Lord, in Jesus' name. We come we bind the spirit of fear. Uh, it holds us captive, and, and, and we announce, we proclaim, we profess that Jesus Christ has defeated you, and you are vanquished, and we stand in the victory of the cross. And we therefore cling to nothing, for our life is Jesus Christ, and therefore we live in fearlessness and, and trust in the power of the manger, the power of the cross, the power of the Christmas story, the power of your humble servant love. And we commit ourselves to living in this day in and day out, and to respond to threats and enemies uh, with the wisdom of Christ and the foolishness of the cross. Lord, help us to covenant with this, keep us in this, seal this in our heart, Holy Spirit, as we now, now go out to manifest your love in this world that so desperately needs it. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Merry Christmas. Amen.